A tale of bags to riches in the metaverse. Welcome back to Cartmels and Conversation. Having given you that somewhat esoteric title, I'm very excited today to be welcoming a couple of guests to talk about one of those IP cases that has hit the mainstream news. This is one that ticks all the boxes. Famous brand, Hermes, check. Luxury designer goods, the Birkin handbag, check. And the high-tech new world of NFTs or non-fungible tokens and the metaverse. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Roger Lush, who is one of the partners in the trademarks team here at Cartmel's. And Simon Kiva-Kapari, who has featured, I think, at least on a couple of podcasts so far, so he'll be familiar to some of you, who is a member of our transactions team, but has lots of wide-ranging interests. And I'm sure luxury handbags is one of them, Simon. It's one of my faves, I have to admit. It's a dirty (laughs) little secret. Well, welcome to both of you. Simon, maybe we can start with you. I know you've been involved in writing an article about this particular case. Can you perhaps give us a little bit of a flavour of what it's all about? Definitely, Lara. Thanks. Roger and I put together a short article summarising the case, which is on our website. This is the first case of its kind, really. Hermes, the French luxury goods brand, in a decision of the court of the Southern District of New York, this case answered the question of whether a brand owner's trademark rights in physical goods are capable of being infringed by virtual goods, the NFT angle you you talked about earlier on. I guess just I lied earlier on. I didn't know anything about Birkin bags when I first came across it. I said, oh, Birkin, I had to look it all up. So this is all me sort of cribbing and everything. I own a handbag, but I hasten to add it's not a Hermes handbag. So (laughs) this is news to me too. Tell us about the Birkin bag. What I found out in my journey in the fancy bag world, it was in 1984 when all of this started on a flight from Paris to London. The famous English-French actress-singer Jane Birkin of fame with Serge Gainsbourg for that rather steamy song, Je t'aime, moi non plus, if I pronounce that correctly. And then there's lots of heavy breathing and all that sort of stuff, which people will remember. I do. You're going to have to sing it for us, Simon. (laughs) I'll do that for the closing credits. How about that? Perfect. So she was on a flight and um, coincidentally she was sitting next to the executive chairman of Hermes, Jean-Louis Dumas. And she had a baby at the time, and she was basically complaining that she didn't have a bag to put all the baby stuff in, a really nice bag and useful bag. And he, on a napkin on his little table in his airline seat, he sketched out a rectangular leather tote bag with a handy flap that goes over the top. And it also included a compartment for her baby's bottle. And this, from this fairly humble beginnings as a tote bag for carrying baby's bottles, it ended up being what's known in economics as a Veblen good which is basically a type of good for which the value increases as demand increases in a converse to usual economics, really. So it's now become a massive luxury brand. It's a sign of exclusivity. And if my maths are correct, I think they've been selling for upwards of half a million dollars for a handbag. Oh, wow. So that's the Birkin bag. That's not something I would let my baby bottles anywhere near, to be honest. But anyway, that's (laughs) another story. The way this action came about was in May 2021, the Los Angeles-based artist Mason Rothschild, his real name is Sonny Esteval, created a single NFT called Baby Birkin. And this was linked to a digital animation of a 40-week-old human fetus gestating inside a transparent Birkin handbag. And he sold this NFT, the Baby Birkin, for $23,000, and that was subsequently sold on for $47,000. I think this kind of planted a seed of the importance of 
Birkin bags and NFTs in Mr. Rothschild's mind. And in December 2021, he creates a collection of 100, not just one anymore, 100 NFTs linked to digital images of the Hermes Birkin handbag, which he dubbed Meta Birkins, each of which depicted the Birkin bag covered in brightly colored faux fur that to me looked pretty awful, but people bought them. And he sold that collection for over a million dollars. So just to be clear, these are we're all talking about things in the metaverse here, not actual physical goods. So he's just created these, I suppose, what he would call artworks, but lots of them. Exactly. And that's the unique point of this case. So Hermes brought a trademark action against Mason Rothschilds in the Southern District of New York in January 22. They'd sent a cease and desist letter and both parties had unsuccessfully filed cross motions for summary judgment. But the judge decided there was too much disagreement and it needed to go to trial. And the upshot of all of that was in March of this year, following a six-day trial, a Manhattan jury found in favour of the plaintiffs, Hermes, in their action against Mr. Rothschild. I think the judge decided that the claim should be assessed under the test defined in the 1989 US case, Rogers v. Grimaldi, which balances free speech and trademark rights. The test requires the court to determine first whether the defendant's use is artistically relevant to the underlying work, and secondly, whether the defendant's use is explicitly misleading as to the source or content of the work. So that was a test that was applied in the US. I think you've zoned in on the one of the most interesting and perhaps difficult parts of the case. As we said, this is a US case. I suppose the first question that pops into my mind, Roger, maybe you want to say a little bit about this, is would the case have played out similarly over here in the UK? Do we have a similar sort of defence, if you like, to this claim of infringement, this freedom of speech type defence? Yeah, and that's a really interesting point. And it wasn't one that I had an answer to straight away. And the more I've looked into it, the more interesting it becomes. So there's, there's nothing in UK or European statutory law, trademark law, that provides for a freedom of expression defence. So there's nothing expressed, written down anywhere that we can see. And indeed, there's no, at least in the UK, there's no written constitution in the same way that the Americans have. So we can't point to a written document enshrining the freedom of expression. I think the closest thing we have is the European Convention on Human Rights, which does contain provision for freedom of expression. But how does that get into trademark law, if at all? My starting point was the European Directive on Trademarks. It harmonizes the law on trademarks around Europe, including the UK. And there's a recital in that directive. So it's only a recital. It's not an operative provision. And I'll quickly read it because it's very short. And it says, use of a trademark by third parties for the purpose of artistic expression should be considered as being fair as long as it is at the same time in accordance with honest practices. Furthermore, this directive shall be applied in a way that ensures full respect for fundamental rights and freedoms, and in particular, the freedom of expression. So if I were Mr. Rothschild's lawyers over here in a similar scenario, this might look like an opening a chink where there might be room for a fair use or a freedom of expression claim. But that leads on to a couple of points. So the fair use provision in the recital, that's subject to the caveat that it must be in accordance with honest practices. Yeah, that jumped out at me, actually, because that's a feature of several defences to trademark infringement we have in the statute, isn't it? Absolutely. So there have been a lot of cases on honest practices in the trademark setting already. And they're all very much specific on their facts, as you might expect. But 
the European court, so this is binding across Europe, has ruled in several cases on this. And to give you a flavor of some of the things that the court has taken into account when assessing honesty, they include things like the defendant's knowledge of the earlier mark, including of the reputation and whether that reputation would be adversely affected, whether the earlier mark is discredited or denigrated, whether the defendant should have realized there was a likelihood of complaint and whether the defendant's use interferes with the claimant's ability to exploit the mark. That's just a handful of the factors that they look at. And I don't think taking those into account, it takes a great leap to imagine that a court over here would find that Mr. Rothschild's behavior was not in accordance with honest practices. It's almost impossible to say that he didn't know about Hermes and their rights in Birkin. And that was a famous mark with a huge reputation. It's inconceivable that he wouldn't have known that. Arguably, his use is discrediting or denigrating the mark. Um, I mean, they don't sound like terribly attractive things from what Simon was describing. On that point, Roger, one thing that Rothschild did argue is that his use of the bags was similar to Andy Warhol's use of Campbell's soup tins in his 1962 thereabouts famous screen prints, you know, the whole series of those. Is it not like that from a UK perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think the issue here is probably the fame and reputation of the Birkin handbag. And this is where it all gets very fact specific. Does that mean Andy Warhol also infringed Campbell's soup? I'm not sure that claim was ever brought, but I think the point is that using a famous and valuable brand like Birkin imports into the artistic work some inherent value of its own. Would these things have sold for a million dollars if you'd have just used any old brand? Not wishing to do down Campbell's brand, but it's not the most glamorous. And you don't go around spending half a million quid on a tin of soup, do you? It's sort of a whole different ballgame when it comes to a luxury good like the Birkin bag. Exactly. And this sort of brings in one of the cornerstones of European infringement action, at least, where even if there is no confusion between the defendant's product and the trademark owner's brand, even if everyone knows that one is Mason Rothschild and that the real Birkin is Hermes, then the fact that the defendant, Mr. Rothschild, has free ridden, has taken advantage of the prestige and value of the Birkin brand to get a leg up to sell his artwork, is what Hermes would say, no doubt, then that category of infringement is certainly one that exists and is fairly regularly enforced under European law. Are you basically saying that in the Hermes Rothschild case, what was applied was the test as set out in Rogers versus Grimaldi, and the jury found in favour of Hermes in this case, based on evidence that the Metaburkins are more similar to consumer products and therefore subject to trademark laws, as opposed to art, which is protected by the First Amendment. Basically, it seems a lot more cut and dry in the States. Are you saying it's not the same in the UK? I know Rogers and Grimaldi is itself now subject to question as under recent US cases in Supreme Court decisions, but looking at Rogers and Grimaldi on its own, so I think what the difference between the UK and the US position and the Rogers and Grimaldi test is that we don't recognize freedom of expression in the same extreme way as is done so in the USA. It's not down in black and white in the Constitution. Over here, I think it's a much softer provision if you look at the Convention on Human Rights. That's framed very much in terms of freedom of expression vis-a-vis -vis the state versus the individual, rather than as between private 
parties, as is the case in an IP scenario. And it's a balancing act, isn't it? So that you allow people to express themselves politically, for example, you mentioned the state, but equally not to the extent that it's then infringing on the rights of private parties. Yeah, it's just less clear cut. There is no absolute right. So if, uh, as a kind of a, a bit of a madcap example, if Laris drew a wonderful picture of me holding a Birkin bag over my shoulder and looking quite pleased with myself, because I've never had such a fancy bag, but that was just a one-off painting, would that infringe Hermes trademark? Well, I think there the... <laughs> I'm not saying you don't have inherent value, Simon, and you certainly are a one-off, but I think there's a clear line in UK and European law that requires the offending sign to be used in the course of trade. And if this was a one-off photograph or painting of you, perhaps for personal use, then that clearly doesn't fall within the course of trade. And that will mean that any infringement case would fall at the first hurdle over here, because that is, as I say, a fundamental aspect of the use that can infringe. That's a really interesting thing about this particular case in the US though, Simon, because you started telling us that initially Rothschild created this one artwork, which was of the fetus inside the Hermes bag. If he'd just sold that one, I wonder whether then a jury or a judge would have bought the line that this is just, come on, this is just a one-off artwork. I'm making some kind of almost political commentary about the luxury good that can be used to... (laughs) wrap up a human fetus. Whereas the fact that he then did that thought, oh, this is sold quite nicely. I can see a whole lucrative venture here in other Hermes bag artworks in air quotes. I think that's a key point, isn't it? The fact that he then went on to produce a hundred of these things. And if I've understood it right, it's at that point, the subsequent point after the first artwork, that's when he dubbed them Meta Birkins. Yeah. And actually that was the primary use, as I understand it, that Hermes was complaining about. Yeah, that's what we have to remember here. It's not just the picture of the bags. He's actually, he's using the trademark in that sense to sell the NFTs. Definitely. So I think for me, that's where he crossed the line. It was the multiplicity of the images that he produced and also the dubbing of them as Meta Birkins. And I think that's probably where it tipped over the line from artistic expression into commercial exploitation, unfairly relying on someone else's reputation. So going back to Lara's picture of me with a Birkin bag, if Lara made a hundred prints of those and she's flogging those, that's definitely commercial use. But I still think that if it's a one-off, even if it's sold as an artistic work, even under UK law, why would that be in the course of trade? The course of trade over here is defined very broadly and it's not just about profit and revenue. It is defined very broadly anything in the course of business whether that's not-for-profit or otherwise. Does that mean if you have a painting that has a trademark in it, you can never sell the painting? Well, that opens a whole other can of worms, doesn't it, about incidental use of trademarks where it's just part of a larger picture, literally, and it's there, but it's not performing its origin function. If I had a Birkin bag over my shoulder, I don't think anybody would think it was incidental. It'd be the first thing they'd see, isn't it? And why the hell am I carrying a Birkin bag? But equally, I don't think they would draw any inference as to the origin of the painting just because you happen to be holding a Birkin bag. And there is a whole line of cases on incidental trademark use. The famous ones are the old football cards or soccer cards from back in the day where they had pictures of players and they were wearing their club shirts with the crests on. I mean, that subject's a whole nother podcast. I think it probably is. Is this taking us to the position really that the whole NFT side of this and the whole metaverse side of it is a bit of a red herring in a way. And 
All we really need to do is go back to basic principles of trademark law to get to the answer. I think there is certainly an element of that. I think when online trademarks, not metaverse, but the traditional internet, if I can call it that, when that became a thing, there was a lot of talk around how that might change trademark law. And actually what we've seen in that context is that trademark law has adapted, but the overriding principles have remained the same. Now, that might happen in terms of the comparison of virtual goods versus physical goods. I don't think the criteria for establishing similarity will change significantly. But certainly the metaverse does open up a whole raft of challenges for trademark law going forward. At a very prosaic level, that might be how one defines and classifies virtual goods and services and NFTs. And indeed, there's guidance published on that by various trademark officers, which has been well publicized already. But looking forward, perhaps when we get into more an enforcement context, there are bigger questions around how, for example, does one identify a digital defendant when the defendant is an avatar? How do you find out who's actually behind that given privacy laws these days? And if you find out who, how do you find out where as well? Precisely. IP rights generally, including trademarks, are arranged on a territorial basis. And when the traditional internet came in that there was some questions about how that would work, but there are indicia that we look at to see whether an infringer is targeting a specific jurisdiction. So we'll look at language, we'll look at where the product is shipping to, we'll look at the currency that it's offered in. All these things can give you a pointer as to where the infringer is actually doing business and whether there is infringement in the territory where you have rights. But if you imagine a metaverse world that is truly borderless, and traditional currencies probably won't exist. We'll be talking about Bitcoin and the like. So how does it work? How do you say that my UK, for example, trademark is infringed by this use in the metaverse? Could the metaverse perhaps have its own geographical identification? And maybe that's something. Because if everything happens in the metaverse, the real world, or I think the IT boffins called it the meat world that we inhabit. The meat world. I haven't heard that. Yeah, if everything is happening in the metaverse, buying and selling and living and loving and everything, there's only one place. Yeah, well, I mean, these are huge and unanswered questions, not just for IP, but for society in general, I would expect. Gosh, we're getting into all sorts of things here. But yeah, no, it's a really interesting question. I suppose coming back to this particular case, I completely agree that trademark law has this amazing ability to reinvent itself when new technologies come along and use the old principles in new contexts. And I suppose that is what's happening here. But the thing for me about the metaverse and NFTs is they bring art and commercial behaviour closer and closer together. So in this case, we're talking about this idea of honest use as an artist or what's clearly commercially trying to take advantage of somebody else. And as soon as you bring NFTs into the mix, which seem to me at least to be purely commercial, I'm sure there'll be plenty of people who disagree with me, but it's not like you're buying the physical artwork here. You're buying the ownership of something that's digital. So that to me is a very commercial transaction and it becomes much harder in my mind at least to say that's something artistic and expressive when ultimately what you own is a digital token of something. But yeah, I'm sure there are plenty of people who disagree. I think at the end of the day, we just go back to human nature, don't we? Versus use honest or dishonest, whether that's from you know, looking at it from a UK perspective. And it's kind of looked at in a similar way, I think, in the US in this particular case, 
the threshold? Was it purely artistic or did he cross the line into commercial exploitation? And he didn't seem to think so. But everybody else thought, no, you're having a bit of a laugh. You suddenly made a hundred of them. You went from one to a hundred in a few months and you cashed in. And interestingly, it was a jury trial, which is not a concept we have here, but a jury of his peers and equals obviously felt that there was something wrong about his behavior that shouldn't be allowed to stand. So that's an interesting reflection, perhaps, on your human nature point, Simon. Yeah, it's always funny, isn't it, with these cases? They end up in hundreds of pages of analysis and evidence heard and all the rest of it. But ultimately, does it come down to a sort of basic human instinct? Does this smell a bit fishy? And you think, yes, it does. Why can we justify that hunch that we have? Can you smell things in the metaverse? I don't know. Who knows? Probably at some point. I thought years ago they were going to introduce smelly vision for when you watch the telly, but that hasn't happened. Do these Hermes handbags have a smell? I don't know. I don't know. I've never come across one. I probably never will. I guess just to close this, really, from the point of view of this decision being an advantage to trademark owners, I think it is at the end of the day. Yeah, I think it must be. It is a case in a respected court, albeit a jury trial, that has decided when you strip everything away that, at least in principle, physical goods and virtual goods can be held similar and that use of one with an appropriately offending mark can be infringement. So I think for trademark owners, it's a first step. It's a first instance decision. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if it's appealed. Absolutely. It is still subject to appeal as far as I understand. And yeah, watch this space. But it's the first step down that road. And no doubt there will be many other cases in many other jurisdictions of this nature. So it will be interesting to see if there is convergence or a divergence of law and practice on this. Yeah, definitely. It's obviously a developing area and it'll be interesting to see what happens in cases where we're not talking about quite such a famous mark as well. But yes, we will be keeping our BDIs on new cases as and when they emerge. And I'm sure this will not be the last time we'll be talking about NFTs and the metaverse on this podcast. Thank you both very much for a very lively discussion on all things handbags and metaverse. As Simon mentioned, we have a lovely article on this topic as well if you want to go and read more about it on our website where you can also find all previous episodes of the podcast. So all it remains is for me to say thank you very much for listening and I look forward to welcoming you back to another episode of Cartmel's In Conversation very soon. Mm